All right, we're in Tav. Yes, we are, Tav, which is crossed sticks. Mark, sign, signal, monument. Mentioned in Revelation, the mark. And it's also the cross, is it not? The cro it is the cross. It is. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise. You teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I, am chose I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commandments. And so we finish the 119th Psalm once again. Uh, that last letter, Tav, is, as you noticed, it means uh, it's uh, symbolized by cross sticks. The Paleo-Hebrew was in the shape of a cross. It's, it, it's just what the Tav is. It's like a cross, like Jesus' cross. And it is referenced in Ezekiel chapter 9. So I'll read you this passage so you know where the Tav is actually referenced. It says, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each one with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the men with the linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark, a tav is the word here. Put a tav on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry all over the, the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, in my hearing, speaking to the ones with the mapats or the shattering weapon in their hand, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens, and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the tav, the mark, the cross and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. A little lesson for you there, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with the linen, with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said to me, I have done as you commanded me. So the Tav, he said, put it on anybody that is, you know, in, in right standing with the Lord, that mourns over what's going on. The cross is what saves, Old Testament and new. So right. there you go, a little object and lesson. that was God who commanded him. That's right. The Lord commanded kill. That's right. Kill, kill the people. Huh. Slay them where they are. But, so, uh, but wait. 
Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> King James Version. Says, Thou shalt not kill. kill. Okay, we got a prayer request here. Um, uh, Julie got a letter from her yesterday. I don't want to give her a last name because she didn't, you know, but she did ask us to pray. Julie concerning settlement on an accident, which she has been in, and this settlement has been drawn out for a long time. I hear from her about once a month, and uh, she, uh, it, if it's not settled soon, it's got to go to trial in February, and this poor girl's in constant pain as well, so we want to have her in prayer. And then I have not heard back from Don, who I usually uh, hear from once a week. I haven't heard from him this week, so I'm sure he's not doing so well, and we'll have him in prayer. And then Paul, I know he's not feeling well, but he's at home. He's, he's you know, at least no longer in the hospital, and he will recover much quicker with good food, you know, with his home, with Elaine there, and without being, as Jim noted, woken up every two minutes at night. I mean, it's just it's brutal. So we're glad that he's home, but we'll go to the Lord and ask him for his favor. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and pray for these people, and our sister Joanne as well, who's got something on her heart. And uh, we would pray that you would uh, be with each one of these people and all the others that are suffering with their own afflictions. I know Graham over in Scotland is uh, in very great pain, and he's uh, going to need some medicine and maybe even surgery to help him through this. And so we would pray for him. And uh, like I said, anybody else, Lord, that's out there that has got their burdens, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or financial, whatever it is, we would ask that you would be with them and help them through these times and lead them to a happier place in this life or even better to a trumpet call near you. And we would just be so thankful for that, to be in your presence and away from this world of woe. But we leave all these things in your capable hands, knowing that your decision is always right. And so we thank you that we can uh, come to you, and we thank you for this right and this privilege, which is granted because of the shed blood of Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, boy. So okay. You know what I haven't heard of Pete from is the Lotar. Lota, I haven't heard from him in a little while. It's funny, I was mowing this morning and thinking about him, and I, I thought I need to send him an email, and I got home and I forgot. So if you remind me, I'll send him an email, and we'll see how he is, because I did hear from him last week. But it's, okay. been, it's been about a week, maybe a little bit less. But, uh, yeah, I was just wondering, because usually I used to hear from him almost daily. Mm-hmm. And, but I know he's got some things going on, and, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's got people that he's helping, he's mentoring, so maybe he's just busy with that, but... He's a good guy. And, uh, fingers, Charlie, that had his fingers. What's that? Oh, Caesar! I haven't heard from him this week, but I imagine he's okay. okay. He he got back home, and uh, yeah, they got him sewed on, and it's just going to be the main thing with him now. I think it's going to be, be the therapy. therapy. That's yeah, therapy. I, I've been trying to think of that word for the past hour, and what is it? What it's therapy anyway, and he's got to go through that, so that's going to be tough. Okay, we are in Romans chapter eight. We're in verse twelve, and. Um, uh, Tom, you got any report for us? No. No. Okay. I've changed. When are you going to? I thought you were going to have a. Well, I thought I was too, but I guess it's a point. Okay. All right. Well, because I, I told somebody that I was going to let them know how you were based on what you're doing. You know, and I. Uh, so. be doing all right. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear it. Smiling. So, yeah. Good. Just keep us posted when you know we want to know. Okay. So Romans eight verse twelve. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not the sinful nature. Live according to. Okay, that's um, the beginning of a new chapter as well, and a um, little bit different, not much new different paragraph. in the uh, New King James. It says, um, "Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh." They just changed, you know, yeah. sinful nature to 
from flesh, and they said it instead of repeating it twice, but other than that, it's pretty close. So, okay, therefore, it's given as a summary of verses 9 through 11. Because of these things in verses 9 through 11, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you're supposed to... What is it there for? That's right. See what it's there for, because he's always making a point. He's summing something up. After stating this, he speaks to his audience, which includes us as brethren. In this, he is showing the bond of family, which is formed by the union with the Spirit who dwells in each person who is called on Christ. We're now in a familial relationship, one which continues in the language of believers around the world today. We see another Christian, we say, hey, brother, how's it going? And that's just something that it, it's carried on faithfully in most churches, not all, but uh, it, eventually somebody starts calling somebody brother and it kind of spreads throughout the church pretty quickly. Oh, one other person we haven't seen in a while is uh, Nicole. She hasn't been here for three oh, weeks, right. so I wonder if she's okay. But anyway, okay, um, let's see here. So uh, yeah, hello, Brother Steve. Therefore, brethren, because of those things that I just relayed to you in these past three verses, we are debtors. He then explains this in what may seem rather an unusual way. He says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He uses a negative term to describe our debt, which is something you normally wouldn't do. You owe me $10. You wouldn't say, walk up to somebody and say, you don't owe me $20, right? You'd say, you owe me, and it's not $20. Okay, we don't do that. We say, you owe me this. But he uses a negative term to describe the debt. So... This would be like explaining all of the good things that somebody named Alex did for you by getting you off drugs and then turning around and saying you were a debtor because of all those good things. Not to Mark to live and work for Mark. Mark was your drug supplier. And if you had stuck with him, then you would have eventually died, having given him what you own and in the end thrown your life away as well. This is what Paul is saying here. Therefore, we are debtors as described to us in the preceding verses, not to the one we once served. We are, in fact, debtors to God for the work of God in Christ. Through Christ in us, our body is dead because of sin, but our spirit is alive because of righteousness. We're now truly alive in Christ. So why would we pay a debt to a dead body? Right? That's the point he's making. If we're dead to sin, why would we pay a debt to a dead body? Why would we keep taking drugs? Why would we keep, you know, whatever our sin was that we were freed from, why would we want to go back and keep pursuing it? That's, that's how he's wording this particular question. It would make no sense to do these things. If we pay our debt to someone who is dead, then only death is the result. If we pay our debts to the one who lives in us, then the payment is accounted to that life. See what he's doing? He's using the negative to show us, you know, how stupid it is to take and continue to pay our debt to something that's already defeated, right? We're living for God in Christ. And because of that, if we honor him, then we're re reaping the rewards of that new life. The concept will be built on in the verses ahead and will culminate in some of the most glorious verses and the most magnificence in the life that we have in Christ. It's wonderful to think of what God has done for us, and Paul is going to continue to just build it up for us, little by little, little by little, bit by bit, okay? Very short little thought there, but for a life application, believers in Christ are in a fallen body, okay? We're all in a fallen body. Some of us have been talking about our pains or our sadnesses or our griefs today before class. We know that we're in fallen bodies. 
but we bear the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We are made alive in Christ. If existence implies a debt is owed, and it does, then who are we debtors to? Think it through. If our physical bodies are animated and yet dead, but our spirit is made alive in Christ, then to which should we to which should the debt be paid? We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but to the spirit. To live according to the spirit. Let us think on this with every action we take, because we're going to serve either our flesh or we're going to serve the Lord with every single action that we take in this life. Everything we do will come down to one of those two things, and we can either serve the flesh or we can serve the spirit. It's just the way it is. I'm going to walk down this path, and while I'm walking down this path, I'm either going to be thinking about one of my old girlfriends or I'm going to be thinking about what Christ did for me. It doesn't matter what we do. Every single thing that we do in this life will come down to serving the flesh, thinking about it, dwelling on it, whatever, doing it, or it's going to be honoring the Lord and serving the Spirit. Only two options we have all the way through this entire life. Verse 813. Oh, go ahead. Mine has obligation instead of debt. Right. Yeah. Now, 114, Paul says, I am, here I just looked at it, and he says, under obligation. Right. Is obligation and debt, it is synonymous? When you're obliged to something, yeah, I would say so. That's why they chose that word. You know, I mean. It means we owe. Yeah, and you got to remember now, when people, I can pull up the word, and we can go through it if you want. But um, uh, as a matter of fact, let's do that because you asked. But um, uh, what we have here is, once again, when you have different translations, they can't, what do you say? You, you can't um, uh, have a certain number of words, and if they're the same, then it's considered plagiarization. So eventually, when you've got 450 translations, you've got to have a lot of different words used. But we'll just, just for the sake, because you asked it. While you're looking at okay. the point that you make, it's right. It's like, you know, you, can, you could skip an obligation. Yes. But you can't easily skip a debt. Yeah, you can. It's just that you owe it. It's something that you owe. And it depends on how you term the word obligation as well. If you say, I'm obliged to something, it sounds different than I have an obligation to this kind of... 14, 114, I'm under obligation. Right. You know, and, and, yeah, and over here he says, uh, we are under obligation. Mine reads, we are under obligation. So it's it's... And what version is that? Yeah. That's NASB. Hey, man, once go ahead. No, I, a debt is something that is more economical. Well, it can be. Obligation is a broader term. Yeah, th- that's true, but a debt can also be something moral. I'm under a moral debt to somebody. I'm under a, a you know, a criminal debt. Criminal debt, yeah. And so, it, But you're right. I mean, we think of debt in the, the terms of money normally. But here's what we got. Here's the word that, uh, um, hello, how are you? Ophelietes. Yeah, Ophelietes. It's, um, okay, yeah, a debtor, a sinner. Okay, so here's the uh, breakdown from Help's Word Study. Uh, a debtor, someone who is under obligation, so they use both right there, oh, there to pay back or discharge a debt. So they're using both words, and that's why, you know, when they go through this, and, you know, you got to remember, when you learn Hebrew and Greek in college, what you're learning is the practice of the language, how the structure of the language works, okay? It's something that, if you go to, um, I, I've said this before, but it'll help you to think about this. When a, I used to teach at the church down the road, I was at the Korean church, and they eventually asked me to teach English to the Koreans, okay? And they would come from Korea, and they wouldn't speak a word of English, and yet they knew English far better than any of us ever will. 
they knew how the language mechanically worked. And that's what you're going to get when you go to Dallas Theological Seminary and you take Hebrew or Greek. You're going to learn the mechanics of that language. They're not going to teach you to speak it at all. They, you're, most Hebrew and Greek scholars cannot speak the language. Okay. When I speak it, one day I was at the beach and I was speaking it, and Will Groban had no idea what I was saying. But he knows the language far better than I do because he knows the structure. Okay, so having said that, you have somebody that's trained in Hebrew or in Greek. Okay, they know the mechanics of the language. They know that this particular um, letter at the beginning of a Hebrew word means this structure. Whereas a Hebrew-speaking person isn't thinking that. They just know. When we read a language or a sentence in English and we see something's wrong, we may not know why it's wrong, but we know what's wrong, and we know how to fix it. We just put in the right word, right? Okay, having said that, these people are trained in the structure of language. They're trained in the mechanics of it, but they don't know the language. They don't know this word and this word and this word. It's just like us. When we're learning a new language, what do we do? We get out a dictionary, and we say, well, this word means, right? And even in English, we hear words we've never heard before, and if we're studious enough, we'll say, well, I wonder what that word means, and you'll go and look it up, right? Okay. That is what they do when they translate the Bible. They know the language, but they don't know the meaning of the words. And so now they have to go to something like this, and they read about what that word means. And eventually, they're going to get an idea, because you've got a lot of words that are, are very similar, okay? And the, uh, you know, they, there, and you know that it's a pronoun, and those type of things. But eventually, you have words that are very similar because of the roots. And so you start to gain a knowledge of it, but you might not know what this particular word means. And so you're going to go in and you're going to read somebody's commentary that does know what that word means. And then they're going to say, oh, well, here it says it's a debt. And then the next guy's going to read it and he says, well, they've already used that word. Let's, it means an obligation. You see what I'm saying? Because they don't really know what the words mean. They know what the mechanics of the language is. But you read that there and he says we're uh, under obligation to pay a debt. To pay the debt. <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's back to Carol's thing about. That's right. But they use it. They use it the same way in both of them. Let me read it to you again, because. It does say that, but it says both of them. It says a debtor or someone under obligation to pay back a debt, okay? And then we can go down a little further. It says, um, uh, for the believer, this word, being a debtor, ends at Calvary where Christ paid all our debt in his blood. He extends total release to us for giving the penalty for each time we spent uh, uh, his gift of life rather than invested it. Indeed, the blood of Jesus removes all the penalty, condemnation of sin. That's John uh, 1930. Okay, so they give you more information. Then you can go down to the NAS, which you have exhaustive concordance, and here are some of the options for that word. Culprits, debtors, indebted, owed, and under obligation. So they use different ones based on the context of the verse that they're looking at. Because you can go... But, but, but 114 says, I'm under obligation right. to, to preach to Jews and, and it, Gentiles, you know, he, and that's the same word. That's the same word. Yeah. Romans one fourteen and Romans 8.12. Yeah. So they're choosing that word based on the context. That's what I'm telling you. This is another thing that you have to remember. When somebody does a website and they cite, oh, well, this is Strong's 3.15 and it can mean, don't read that site anymore. Because it can mean anything. It doesn't matter what it can mean. It matters what the context right. demands. Right. We can have a word that means seven different things in English. And if I pick and choose my theology based on what a word can mean, then I've got a problem. 
All right, what you can do is go back to the root. Where does the root of that, and that's what I do at the sermons. The root of this word, if it gives you valuable information, that is where you're going to find a key in what the Lord is trying to tell you. If it doesn't, then it's just a word and you have to take it in the context of that particular sentence because that word can mean 15 different things. So you have to be really careful when somebody says, well, this, you know, in the Greek, this means, what well, means all of those things? What's the context? That's why we have trained Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic scholars is because they can tell you what a word, but even then you're going to have people that will, okay, I'm translating and I believe that you can lose your salvation. Yeah. I've got a presupposition and so I'm going to choose my yeah. translation of this word based on my presupposition. That's why it is absolutely best to never get stuck on a single translation, as we were talking about just a while ago, because somebody will say kill instead of murder in the Ten Commandments, and kill isn't correct, okay? So you, it, it, everything comes into play. Translation is, as I've said many times, it is the scariest discipline in the oh, Bible really? to me, because you are accountable for taking the Word of God and saying, I am presenting this to another person. That's why when I do a sermon like on Jonah and I translated that one particular word and then at the end I, I, I said, I was very careful to say, I don't want anybody to think that what I am telling you is correct, but I would not say this. I was very specific before you didn't read it because it wasn't in the writing there. I did it before I gave it. I said, I would not say this unless I honestly believe that this is what the Lord is telling us in here because I don't ever want to say, you know, I, I mistranslate in other words. When you mistranslate something, you're taking the word of God and you're giving a bad translation of it. And that's a scary place to be, you know, especially if it's intentional. But if it's unintentional, you're still guilty of doing a bad translation. Well, what I was getting at here, in both of these instances, right. he's under obligation, not to me, but to the Lord. That's right. To give out this. And here he said he's under obligation, not to the flesh, right. but to the spirit. So we, we do owe him... Not that we're... No, we do. It is. I would consider it a debt. He has redeemed us, yeah. and because he's redeemed us, we have to we have to pay our lives in holiness. Should that? Yeah, that's what the Lord says. He says, "Be holy as I am holy." Right. Yes. So we are under whether you call it an obligation or a debt. It is yeah. something that we are we are obligated to, and it is a debt. The verse that you were talking about, where he was under obligation. What is does the new say about? That, here, you mean 114? Yeah, oh, go back there and that was, gee, that was a year ago. Where was going back there? I am a debtor. He says, I am a debtor, both to Greeks yeah. and to barbarians. Yeah. All right, so, both to wise and unwise. So here's here's something, too, that we don't have any concept of that they were very aware of back then. Is that, okay, if, if I was a slave to some guy who was abusing everybody who was a slave, and then I was bought by a good slave owner, Right. It's like, okay, so I I, I get saved. <laughs> right. I'm going to now be in your debt. That's right, for buying me out of you mm -hmm. because you've taken me out of that misery. That's right. And, and that's and the whole like, point he's making. Right. right that's right. the whole point he's making is that we have been taken out of life. Why would we call here's here's think of it this way. Who here in this room has asked Jesus to save them? Okay? You've asked Jesus to save you. Why did you do that? I knew he could. <laughs> because you knew he could and because you knew you needed to be saved. saved, right? So why would you go back and be doing what you shouldn't have been doing in the first place that required you to be saved? Right. You see, the whole point is Christ delivered us from something. Right. So his point here is why would I go back to what I was doing? 
I knew I needed to be saved because I wouldn't have called on Jesus otherwise. When you're saved, when we ask somebody, is, is she saved? It's implying that they need to be saved from something, not for something. We're not saved to go to heaven. Nobody here is saved to go to heaven. We are saved to not go to hell. Heaven is a benefit of being saved, right? Our default position is hell. That's just the way it is. As a matter of fact, I need to get that. I've been meaning to get a start getting tattoos on my truck again. And I just want to go, first one is John 14, 6. I mean, I just want to put it on there and just say, sorry, guys, it's just one way and say John 14, 6 and let people go look it up. But um, uh, anyway, um, that's, that's the point of what we're going through is that we were debtors to sin and now we are supposed to be debtors to Christ because he delivered us from sin, okay? We're saved from something and we get the wonderful benefit of or something at the same time. So did you tell Sergio today to put a colon between 14 and a 6? 14, a colon? He posted online today. Oh, I didn't see that. He, he says, John, look up John 146. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, you got you to gotta, gotta make sure you get that colon in there. Okay, if you're on, Sergio, make sure you put your colon in there after 14. Okay, let's go on. 8, 13. 13, 4. If you live according to the sinful nature... You will die, but if if by the Spirit you put to death the mis misdeeds of the body, will live. Yeah, very close to this one. Instead of misdeeds, they say deeds, mm -hmm. but they're actually misdeeds, even though it's probably just the word deeds. Anyway, anybody ever see that movie, um, Adam Sandler, Mr. Deeds? It was very funny. I don't know if it had any profanity. It was years ago I saw it, but anyway, he he, he uh, it wasn't called Mr. Deeds. He was Mr. Deeds. Anyway. Um, he inherited some billionaires, billions of dollars, and then come to find out. And I won't give it away. It was a pretty funny movie. But knowing Adam Sandler probably had some profanity in it because he just I, – I, I can't watch the guy. I just – I can't now that I – oh, anyway. Okay, 8.13. One commentary concerning Romans 8.13 states, this verse is perhaps the clearest, most concise statement of the way a person once in grace can lose his salvation. Okay? This is a concise and clear statement that a person can lose his salvation according to the New Testament study Bible. All right? One must come to the table already, as I said, presuppositions. One must come to the table already believing that the loss of salvation is possible in order to come to this conclusion. Is that out of Cleveland, Tennessee? I don't know. I have no idea where they are. Oh, yeah, Cleveland, Tennessee. Yeah, the other side of the river. Church of God. Oh, is it? It could be. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, I, I'll, I'll look that up. I'll see who the uh, New Testament study Bible is. But uh, if the concept of eternal salvation is taught both explicitly and implicitly all the way throughout the New Testament, then any verse which appears to contradict this must be taken out of context in order to support the loss mm -hmm. of salvation. This is the problem with coming to the Bible with presuppositions. It is also a problem concerning the nature and workings of God. God doesn't think as we do, okay? There are two different types of thought that you can normally engage in in your brain, okay? One is dicursive thinking, and one is um, syllogistic thinking. Does everybody know what those are? No, okay. All right. Oh, let me get up. All right, dicursive thinking 
Let's see. This is me thinking out loud, okay? Jim is a nice guy, okay? Oh, there's a squirrel. <laughs> All right. Okay, boy, am I hungry. Am I? All right. What am I doing here? It's just random thoughts. Dicursive thinking. It's not anything. Okay, it's just this is how we think most of the time. Yeah. When we're dreaming, we have these thoughts just going through our head. Okay, that is what we would call dicursive thinking. It's just thinking one thing to another. Okay, the other one is syllogistic thinking. All right. Charlie, let's pick on one of the girls. Carol. <laughs> Carol is. Um, uh, let me think of something nice that I I'm, I got to think syllogistically. Carol is. Um, uh, uh, okay, well, we'll we'll start with that. And I got to make sure that it's a syllogism. <laughs> is what I'm getting. At. Carol is kind. Okay, yeah. Carol is kind. Carol is always on time for Bible class, except today. <laughs> And, uh, okay, therefore, <laughs> therefore, I like Carol. L-I-K-E, Carol, okay? Okay, that's, that is what we call syllogistic thinking, all right? This, this, therefore this, okay? One plus one equals two. It's, 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 syllogism means I'm forming a conclusion based on something. The wall is hard. The wall can be broken. The wall is not stone. It's probably um, sheetrock. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It, you're, you're making deductions and you're thinking logically. How do you spell syllogism? S-Y-L-O-G-I-S-T-I-C or syllogism. S-Y-L-L-O-G-I-S-M. That's a syllogism or syllogistic thinking. Anyway, so you got these different types of thinking. Those are the two most prevalent types of thinking that we have. Okay, what happens while I'm thinking? Time is moving on. If we don't know anything else about our thinking, we know that time is moving on. Okay, everybody got that? I, I'm not going to go any deeper than that because that was perfectly enough to resolve the equation. Does God think syllogistically? He knows Absolutely. He knows all things immediately and intuitively. He does not think in time. God is outside of time. He doesn't think this, this, therefore this, and he does not think dicursively either. Mm -hmm. Both of those are something that happen in time. God, God knows everything immediately and intuitively. He is not in time. He created time for our benefit. Mm -hmm. God knows everything. He, there's nothing he can't know, and there's nothing he needs to think through. Okay? That's very important that we understand that. God does not think like we do. When he lays out, when we get to the end of Romans 8, we're going to spend about at least one full class on just predestination and election. We're going to talk about that in depth. But we need to understand that the nature of God is he created and that what he has done, even though it's presented to us in the Bible as a logical sequence. I say this in that, see, you don't attend this church, shame on you, so you don't know this, but during the Leviticus sermons, I have said this at least 10 times during the sacrifices, is that we have this sacrifice, and we have this, and we have this, and we have this. Every one of these happens immediately when we believe in Christ. But we have all of these different things that he has to lay out to show us the process of redemption, right? We, we, we go to the uh, altar. 
We confess our sins over the thing. They cut its neck. They drain out the blood. They take the blood and they splash it. They take, if it's the Day of Atonement, they take the blood, you know, into the uh, Holy of Holies. It, it, all these different things happen instantly, instantly. And on the Day of Atonement, which is coming up starting on Sunday, it's going to be three-part series, you're going to see an entire chapter that's going on, which is pretty much summed up in one verse. One verse of that chapter summarizes the entire life of Jesus Christ. One verse, okay? And then it goes and explains that. And all of that is in time for our benefit. God doesn't think that way. Everything that happens, happens immediately, and it happens intuitively in his head. There is never anything he will ever learn. There's nothing he ever has learned or ever could learn. Proverbially. Per that's right. Okay? And so when we look at... Predestination, when we look at salvation, when we look at all of these issues, we have to remember that God did not think the way that he is explaining it to us. It was in his mind already. And he is taking those things and he is revealing them to us. So let me read this now. God does not think as we do. His thoughts are immediate and intuitive. And in oh, I even say it, not dicursive or syllogistic. Within the framework of time, that he created. Those things here are in our framework of time. Be because he created time, that means he's outside of time, and any of this movement which occurs in time could not be in God. So we have to think of that when we think of salvation. For a person to be sealed with the Spirit, the act must, by the very nature of God, be eternal. Eternal. Because he doesn't say, oh, I'm going to seal somebody, and then say, oh, I made a mistake and unseal them. Anything that God has decided is. And he knew that he would seal us before it ever happened, before he created the first grain of dust. Okay? He knew that would happen. And he also knew that if this person is going to be saved, I am going to seal them. God does not make mistakes. And when people say, you can be saved, and then you can be unsaved, you are inserting your dicursive or syllogistic thinking into your theology not God's immediate and intuitive knowledge of your salvation. You believe, you receive, and that's what Paul says. It doesn't happen in the sequence that Paul writes it. It happens immediately. It happened immediately before he created. He knew that we would. That doesn't mean that we don't have to make the choice. He has given us time for our benefit, and when we are fallen, and when we hear about Jesus, we have a choice to make. He knows that choice, but it doesn't negate us making that choice. Okay, it's very important to understand the nature of God, and that's why when we did Genesis 1, verse 1, our first sermon in the Bible, I hardly talked about the Bible at all. All I did was talk about the nature of God and how we can know that Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Whatever God that must be like will now be presented here. Everybody got that? That it was, And I did that intentionally, because if you don't understand the nature of God, then everything else that you read in this is going to have a flaw in it because you're taking what you think, you know. From your perspective. From your perspective. What does it say about the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes? The sun also, come on, Hemingway wrote a book called it. The sun also rises, right? Okay, that's what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Does the sun rise? No. No, the earth spins, okay? Here's the sun and the earth spins. And because the earth is spinning, we have a sunrise. If you if you call your friend in Alaska tonight and you say, what time of the day is it? What time did the sun rise? And what time did the sun set? They will tell you something completely different than your friend who is in Australia. They will say, well, it's still um, winter here. 
because somebody just told me we were still in, I got an email, it was yesterday, I think, maybe the day before. I, I, anyway, very nice people in Australia. And we were emailing back and forth, and she said, our summer is about to begin. It's still cool, okay? And I said, it's still hot here. It's going to be hot for a while, probably. But anyway, you can tell just by calling the people around this world what time of the day it is, how long their uh, day will be, what time did the sunrise? what time did the sunset. Do it on five or six, six different points of the Earth, and you can make a picture of the Earth without ever having seen the Earth you know that the sun doesn't rise, that the earth is spinning, that the globe out here isn't moving and we're going around it, okay? It's that simple to find out if we are on a flat earth or if we are on a round earth. And yet there are people that believe in a flat earth and I, I'm not here to debate them. Oh, listen, I'm, I get it all the time. People that really, I really like and they're good friends of mine. And they'll, men. No, don't, don't. I get flat earth people all the time accusing me of being an idiot because I believe in a round earth. My friends don't do that. They're nice people, and they just say, well, how can you believe in a round earth? But I'm telling you, if you just simply call eight of your friends on this planet and have a conference call, you can figure it out, okay? It's not a difficult thing to do. But there are people that are not my friends that are on Facebook, and every time I bring up in the Prophecy Update something about a satellite being sent off to uh, the moon or something, look, go read the posts. Oh, you're an idiot. Stop. Oh my just goodness. go look. That Don't trust me on this. Just go read the posts. Oh, I believe okay. you. Yeah. It, it, you know what? But That's scary. It, it, the, that the is point very is, scary. getting off that, the point is that God wrote the Bible for man's perspective. The sun rises from man's perspective. Okay? The stars, the moon, everything that he wrote about is for our perspective. If you think about it, the magnificence of the horse which is described in the book of Job right snorting and going into battle and it doesn't have any fear is a horse magnificent compared to a brontosaurus rex absolutely not but a brontosaurus rex isn't reading the bible is a horse germane to man yes germane to man every single animal that he writes is in relation to our perspective of that animal or of that mountain or of the coolness of the rain. Some things don't care if it rains. Fish don't know if it rains, right? They have no idea because they're underwater. Everything in the Bible is written for man's perspective. That, If you understand that, and if you understand that God does not change, then everything that he is telling us is to help us understand him and what he has done for us in the time that he created for us, this bubble that we're living in. So let's go on. All right, we're, we're go ahead. Fishing in his they bite better. Right? Well, that's right. They, they may, but they don't know what that is. It's just like us. We might hear something outside and say, boy, that's annoying because they're, but you're right. It, it, they do bite better during the rain for whatever reason. Maybe it's because the bugs are being tampered yes, down onto the water. The they, they know these things. But a fish doesn't know it's in water. It's in water. And just like we don't know we're in air, we're just here, you know. But anyway. You're right, though. That, that, that is true. They, they may know it's raining, but it's not written from a fish's perspective of rain. It's written they, from a man's perspective of rain. They go schools all the time, so they probably know. That's true. If they're in school, they may be studying that. That's a good point. Okay, so um, let's go back here. For a person to be sealed with the Spirit, the act must, by the very nature of God, be eternal in consequence. It must be. God cannot err, and therefore it is impossible for him to act against his nature or work against himself. Does everybody understand that? If he sealed you, 
and it wasn't forever, it would be working against this very nature. This is why people need to understand the nature of God before they start their Bible theology. If you start your Bible theology saying, well, I know that my mother taught me that I can lose my salvation and I better be a good boy the rest of my life. When you come to this and you make your New Testament Bible commentary, you're going to say, see, this verse proves that you can lose your salvation because you don't know who God is. God is ever faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar. liar. That's right. All of these things are from our perspective for us to understand something. If something in the Bible seems seems to contradict this, then the problem is with us, and we need to figure out what the problem is, and we're going to find it out right here in this this verse, okay? Let me read the verse again, because we've gone on for a while. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, okay? So they say it's based on a loss of salvation. I'm going to read this again. God cannot err, and therefore it is impossible for him to act against his nature or work against himself. Further, If loss of salvation were possible because of sin after salvation, then no one would remain saved. Nobody. Okay? God would be saving and unsaving them every single day, continuously, as they re-received Christ and then sinned against him. Right? Every time you sin, because a sin is what separates you from your God. Your sin, O Israel, separates you from your God. Okay? One's ultimate state could never, never be truly determined. I don't know if I'm saved now. I've got to get saved again. Jesus, I need you to save me. You would never know until your dying day if you were saved or not. Paul never, ever writes that way, ever, okay? It is folly and it is unclear thinking. If you disagree with me, don't email me, think it through, and then email me because you are not thinking clearly on the nature of God. God is the one that is giving the salvation. We are the one that is in the process of being saved. It is a process which, as I said, happens in a set order in the Bible, but it happens all at once in the mind of God. Every single part of salvation, every sacrifice, everything, when we get to the Day of Atonement, you'll see this. It is all done immediately, and it is all done intuitively in his mind, and then he laid it out for us to experience it, okay? For four, here in this verse, refers to the conclusion of the previous verse. We, meaning believers, are debtors, but not to the flesh. We have been brought out of the body of death, and we are debtors to the one who brought us out. Therefore, the four is speaking of the state prior to this occurring. For if you live according to the flesh, the life that we were previously brought out of, you will die. But in contrast to this, if by the Spirit you put to deeds, the, uh, to death the deeds of the body, you actually, uh, which actually occurred in you, and which has now made you a debtor to the one who brought you out, you will live. Okay, you see that I said deeds, and, and you're right, it was death. Though speaking in the present and future tenses in this verse, it is based on the past actions, which were noted leading up to the therefore of verse 12. In other words, and as Albert Barnes so eloquently states, no man can be saved in his sins. This closes the argument of the apostle for the superiority of the gospel to the law in promoting the purity of man. By this train of reasoning, he has shown that the gospel has accomplished what the law could not do. That's right. The sanctification of the soul the destruction of the corrupt passions of our nature 
and the recovery of man to God. This verse has nothing, zero, diddly, absolutely nothing to do with a loss of salvation. Rather, it has everything to do with what occurred in our salvation. In Christ, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. This doesn't give us license to sin, but it does cover the sins which we commit. We are no longer under law, right? But we are under grace, okay? You can't sin when you're under grace. You can actually offend God, but the sins are not imputed. God is not counting men's sins against them. Thank you, okay? So, life application. Does everybody understand that now? If you come to this book and you say, I know that the Bible says that I can lose my salvation, you're going to dig up a verse like this and you're going to say, see, it proves that you can, when it has nothing to do with it. That word for is telling us something. It's telling us to go back and look at what was just said, which was based on three previous verses. Okay. Context is king. King. Thank you. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? Context, context, context. The, the big one, context. <laughs> Okay, that's the big one. Life application. Time and time again, we come to verses which appear to contradict each other. Jesus is said to be the author of eternal salvation in Hebrews 9, verse 5, verse 9. And yet, difficult verses cause us to be unsure of this. There are no contradictions in God's word, just misunderstandings because of our own failure to fully research or understand a matter. Let us come to the Bible without presuppositions, and when we come to a passage which is difficult, we need to evaluate it, not as a standalone thought, but as a part of a continuous stream of knowledge which is to be taken in its proper context, always proper context. Now, I'll give you a perfect example of this because I say this week after week. When I start a sermon, I always put everything I know about that particular thing aside, as if I've never gone to that passage before and I try to put away every presupposition. And when I got to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, part one in Leviticus 16, verses one through 10, I spent 14 hours on that Monday working on this particular 10 verses. And I stayed up all night long on the couch going over these 10 verses, and I could not resolve something. And I spent the next day thinking about it while doing my other work, and I spent all that week doing it. And finally, I said, I, I'm not going to resolve this now. I need to just put it aside. I'm going to get to part two next week, and I'll we'll see if there's a part three, and there happened to be a part three, okay? And the reason why that happened is because I violated my own premise. Put away your presuppositions. I have read the Day of Atonement before. I've studied it, and I had a presupposition about something in there based on whatever, maybe something I read, maybe it's something I just thought through, and I said, I already know what this is saying, and so I need to work around that. And it wasn't until I got to part three, and one word in part three, which I realized I have been looking at this entirely wrong. I should have done what I do with every single sermon and put aside my presuppositions. And I didn't because I just thought that I knew what was being said in this particular section, one through 10. And I was completely wrong, and it cost me he didn't, who knows? I spent hours and hours and hours just trying to figure this out. She comes home, and I'm still sitting there. Remember that? I, ha I hadn't gotten up all day since 4 in the morning. She came home about 7 o'clock. The dogs hadn't been fed. Nothing had been done. I, I, I was like, don't talk to me. Don't Nothing. I, I, I said, if you're going to feed me, bring it right here. And I sat there, and I ate while still trying to work on this, this problem. And I must have read 50 or 60 pages of commentary on a single verse. 
and I still couldn't resolve it is because I went there with the presupposition. Don't come to the Bible with presuppositions. After you understand that God does not change and you, you understand the nature of God, you can wipe away the presupposition that you can lose your salvation because God doesn't change. And if he saves you, he has saved you. And so that's no longer a presupposition. That is a part of the nature of God. God will not make a mistake, okay? As long as we do that, as long as we understand the nature of God first, which most people do not, most people do not attempt to know the nature of God. And that's why I'm very thankful that I studied at Southern Evangelical Seminary because Norman Geisler is the greatest alive today on this planet he is the greatest person as far as understanding the mechanics of how God operates and he's got it very very well laid out I've said this before and people have emailed me and said would you please send those to me and I use them in the Genesis 1-1 sermon is the um, uh, first principles 12 first principles and how you can logically know something to lead you to something else and then it kind of skips over one and then you have to go back and you understand what's going on if you understand those you will understand much more about the nature of god than you ever ever did and you're going to it gonna takes say, a while it so takes a while for it to sink in well uh, yeah 12 of them but i tell you what when you get yeah. to a uh, number uh, number four or five it's it's uh, i've got them over here we can read them sometime it, it, one of them is it, it took me a long time to really grasp it it's that a contingent being cannot create another contingent being okay that one was the one not that i didn't accept it that's not it i accepted it i knew that it was true but i wanted to know why it was true and i literally thought about it for days days and i was out blowing behind davidson's drugs behind 7-eleven and on the side of davidson's drugs and it dawned on me what a contingent being that means a being that is created cannot create another contingent being and I couldn't understand that. I knew it was true, but I couldn't understand. So I just thought, and finally it dawned on me. If you can understand things like that, and what does that disprove? The Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they say that Jesus was a created being. He was the first created being, and then he created all other things, according to Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 18. The word other isn't in the Bible, but they've put it there because they believe that Jesus was created, but he's also called the creator. So how do we get around that? We put the word other where it doesn't belong in Colossians chapter one. They do it twice in that verse. He created all, by him all other things were created. Impossible. And if you understand the nature of God, that a created being cannot, or yeah, a contingent being cannot create another contingent being, then you can understand that Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. Okay, unless you understand those type of things, you're not going to be able to fully comprehend. You may say, well, I get that or I understand it, but you're not going to be able to comprehend it. And once you comprehend it, you no longer have that nagging question in your mind. My mom, the Jehovah's Witness, be correct, right? Because you were raised that way and it's always going to nag you. But if you think the nature of God through and the nature of man and the nature of creation in relation to God, once you have that, you're in the sweet spot, I'm telling you. You will never come to the table again and say, oh, I could lose my salvation. Right. Not going to happen. Okay. So just one more point on, on that is that, okay, even you might not understand the complete process of the way you, right. you can determine God, but if if it's grace through faith and not works, then, been, then why, once you're saved, would you have to work to keep it? Because then salvation is dependent on works. Right, even right, even right. if it's after being saved, it, what he's saying is absolutely right. If you have to do something after being saved in order to keep being saved, then your salvation is based on works. It can't be based on grace. Okay. 
It doesn't matter how long you live. It doesn't matter if you live 100 or 1,000 years, Methuselah, 969 years. If you were saved and then you have to do something at some point to keep being saved or not do something in order to keep being saved, then it was never by grace at all. And the sealing was a mistake because God knew if it's the God of the Bible that you were going to make that error and he never should have given you the sealing in the first place. It was never of God's grace. That's absolutely right. Burke, you had something? Does he have a book on these 12 I got them right here. I'll give them to you. A list. Well, he's always got all kinds of books. As a matter of fact, the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, the Becca book. If you want it, I'll give it to you, and then you read it and give it back to me. It's about this thick. It's what, it's, 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 it's got all kinds of stuff on it. If you remind me, I'll bring it to you, the Becca book. It, you could probably get it. It's expensive if you buy it new, but if you, you know, college people use it, and then they sell it on Amazon, you could probably get one for a couple dollars, and it's probably never been opened because most people just buy it because they're required to. But um, uh, you get one in, from a college student on Amazon, B-E-C-A, the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. And he defines all that. And what it is, is it's an encyclopedia of all kinds of good stuff. All right. Dispensationalism and the nature of God and, um, you know, the working of the spirit. And it's just a compilation of a lot of his other books. But Norman Geisler's written like 65 books. He's in a competition with another guy that's old like him. And every time he writes one, he goes out and writes another. He doesn't want to die with this guy having written more books than him. So um, anyway, it, it, and I don't know if the other guy is still alive or not. He may have won by now. But anyway, that, that's one. He brought that up in one of the, uh, the classes. But um, I'll give you the 12 first principles, and I can give you some analysis on it. Uh, but if you want the Becca book, remind me, and I'll just bring it in. You can use it. Uh, and, let me see what you got. Okay, whatever. Anyway, um, so, um, okay. Looks like that scares me. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just, it's just a reference book. All kinds. It's like looking an encyclopedia. You want to look up um, nature of man, go to N, or go to M, man, and then nature of. And you can learn about anthrop anthropomorphism. Thank you. Anthropologic, but yeah, anthropomorphism, you know, the, the nature of man. So anyway, um, again, he's got it all laid out in there. So it's more a reference than anything, but he does define the 12 principles in there. Okay, 814. 814. Because those who are led... By the Spirit of God, are sons of God. Okay, there you go. It's almost the same thing here, so I'm not going to bother with it. The sons of God, as applicable to the post-resurrection New Testament, are those who have been adopted by God through faith in Christ. Okay, sons of God. Well, I'm just going to divert here for a minute just into something completely irrelevant to Romans, but uh, in Genesis chapter 6... It says, yes, it's exactly. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And it's one of those verses in the Bible that is absolutely uh, misused. Okay, it's there are a few different views on who these sons of God are. Some people say they're angels and some people say they're this and they're that. The answer is very clear. If you pick up the Bible and you come to it without presuppositions and you do a study on the term sons of God, one other time in the Old Testament it says Bene Ha Elohim or the sons of God, which is the same term here. It's in the book of 
Job, and it speaks of the angels coming before the throne of God and say, say, see, that proves that. And, you know, anyway, it's not. If you want to know what that particular passage is speaking of, go watch the sermon on Genesis 6, 1 through whatever, and, and uh, I, I define it. I defend it. And uh, if you disagree, that's fine. I have no problem with that, but there's no point in emailing me on it because I've gone through every single verse that people throw in about justifying it as angels and all that, and it's not angels, okay? In the New Testament, the sons of God, Jesus speaking, of course, under the Old Testament because he's not yet crucified. He's under the Old Testament, uses the term sons of God like 800 times, and he never says angels. He's speaking about men, and then Paul picks it up in the New Testament after the resurrection, sons of God. The term is speaking of the people of God, okay? It's speaking of the people in the family of God, all right? To take one time and say, Ben Ha Elohim says here in the book of Job, and that, and then they take you know, lesser texts, which happen to say something in the book of Deuteronomy, and they say, well, see, and it's not even, it's one text that doesn't agree with any other text, and they build a theology around it, okay? The book of Job, what they do, I I, I won't, I'm sorry, Jude, book of Jude gives a list of sins that the people have committed, and one of them is homosexuality, and then the next verse talks about angels, and they say, see, these two verses are together, when it's out of an entire list of sins, Okay, and so you say, well, this one and this one fit together when they don't. It's just the list that he makes. They they have to take something and they have to insert a presupposition in order to come to that conclusion. So if you want to know about Ben Eha Elohim, the sons of God, watch the sermon. And if you disagree, that's fine. You just disagree. It's one of those things that people disagree on. All right, it's not a salvific issue. It's not an issue that's going to affect your salvation. All right, but it borders on goofy. If you start watching the Nephilim. Uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Sermons on YouTube. There's a million of them. They're always goofy. Okay, just it's just goofy. So there we go. Um, that's my thought on the sons of God. Anyway, eight fourteen. The sons of God, as applicable to the post-resurrection uh, New Testament, are those who have been adopted by God through faith in Christ. We are born again, thus moving from Adam to Christ. Okay. This concept is alluded to on numerous occasions, lots and lots of them in the uh, New Testament. But two are from Galatians, which I'll take you very quickly there. Let's see here. Galatians, and we got chapter 3, and it says, um, where are we? 3.26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so you're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And then in chapter 4, it says, um, let's see here. But when the fullness of time had come, this is verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent forth his, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, right? Okay, so that's, that's two of many verses that show that we have moved from Adam to Christ, and we are sons of God through adoption. Nothing uh, politically incorrect with the term sons. As I've said, if a male is being addressed, even if there's one male in a group of 50 women, you always use the masculine. That's the way the Greek reads, that's the way the Hebrew reads, and that's the way English used to read, all right? Nothing saying that women are not included in that. It's just a term, like the children of men. It includes everybody, sons and daughters, right? Okay, but we're just for the sake of not being PC, we just say sons. Not being violators. Not being violators, that's right. 
The sons of God referred to in Romans 8 verse 14 are no different. Being led by the Spirit refers to those who have received the Spirit. This is the baptized into Christ spoken of in the verse I just read you back in 327 of Galatians. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the sign of his sonship, okay? There is no second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Charismatics teach that. That is not correct. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is being sealed with the Spirit, okay? In the book of Acts, certain things happened which were uh, to show Peter that these people had received the Spirit, okay? Or to demonstrate to them that the Spirit was among them. That's no longer needed. Okay, that's not something that's going to be repeated. It's not something you cannot expect to sit in a church and have flames of fire come down on you and say, come Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. Those are descriptive verses to show the establishment of the church. The book of Acts is descriptive. 99.9% of the book of Acts is descriptive. Okay, when Jesus speaks, that's prescriptive. He says certain things at the beginning of Acts and he's quoted once in the book of Acts. There are a couple of other times that we could say, well, that's prescriptive. It's prescribing something. But 99% of that book is something that is telling us what happened, not what we can expect today. Okay? We went through that. It took us three and a half years to get through it. It was a good study. It was very clear what is going on in the book of Acts. It is showing us the establishment of the church. It's showing us the moving of uh, the uh, authority from Jew to Gentile. It's showing us you know, the transition of these things from under the law to being under grace and understanding that all of these things needed to happen. You didn't just one day wake up and say, okay, the law is over and I don't need it anymore. They had to be weaned off of it. The book of Acts is showing us all of those type of things. Everybody remember that? Every part of the book of Acts. I know you do. Every word of it because it's a marvelous study. Okay. Anyway, so we have um, the baptism uh, when we're baptized into Christ is um, the sign of our sonship. Being led by the Spirit is speaking of responding to the call of the Spirit, a call which is made to all who hear the message. Some follow the leading and some don't, right? We have Christians that are saved that do not follow the leading of the Spirit, right? We have people in this church. How many people attend on Sunday morning? 20, okay? How many of those do exactly the same thing as every other person in the church? Zero. And if you take all, we'll say there's a billion Christians, real Christians on earth, maybe a billion or whatever, whatever the number is, whatever the number is, not one of them is on the same level as the other. We're all walking to Christ and in accord with his spirit differently. Okay. That's just the way it is. There are no two people that are in accord completely with one another. That's just not the way it works. Okay. Those who do not accept Jesus as Lord are those who become I'm sorry, those who do walk in the Spirit and accept Jesus as Lord are those who become sons of God. This will be evident in the next verses. It is he who leads to the call, and it is he who seals us when the call is made. Note, if you've ever, oh, I don't even need to say it. I was going to say, if you've ever been curious about the sons of God, watch this video, and I put it there. And so uh, anyway, it's the Genesis 6 sermon, and go watch it if you want to know who the sons of God are. Old Testament, no, it doesn't change, okay? Life application, have you accepted Jesus as Lord? If so, you are a child of God through adoption. Now, it is incumbent on you to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Implying, do not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit of God, implying that you can (laughs) grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 
right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure I grieve him a million times a day. Burke only 990,000 times a day, <laughs> all right? But we all can grieve yes. the Holy Spirit. It is incumbent on us to not do that, all right? We're all to strive to be the best model Christians that we can, and whatever that means in your state as a Christian. Each one of us is going to do it differently, okay? As you allow the Spirit to lead you to life in Christ, now allow the Spirit to lead you in your Christian walk, right? He's, you allowed him to lead you right into the arms of Christ. You called on Christ and he sealed you. Why wouldn't you allow him to continue to push you along in Christ? Okay, 8.15. Four, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Abba Father. Father. In this Galatians, absolutely. Now this one says the spirit of adoption because we are adopted and that makes us sons. So sonship or adoption, it's a different term saying the same thing, all right? So this is now the third four, which follows the therefore, verse 12. As he does frequently, even earlier in this chapter, Paul is building up a solid wall of doctrine, one point leading to the next in order to buttress his argument. Let's follow the progression, okay? One, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, Two, for if you lived according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Three, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Four, again, four, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. As I said, when Seth does his sermons, he always goes to the Greek and he circles all of these prepositions so he can more readily identify it because sometimes they're in an emphatic position in the Greek, which we won't get in the English, right? It'll say, um, a now, therefore, uh, or therefore now, and one of them will be, have an emphasis based on how he writes it. And so you get a little bit more out of it, all right, unless somebody tells you that this is an emphatic uh, preposition, all right, or an emphatic whatever. But... Um, even if you do that in the English, you circle your prepositions, it's going to help you a little bit if they're properly identified from the Greek. Okay, this four here, this one, is an explanation of the previous conclusion about being a son of God. It is a four which is divided into two thoughts. The first contrasts being led by the Spirit of God to having left the spirit of bondage to fear. Okay, so you're being led by the Spirit of God, you've left the spirit of bondage to fear. Okay, contrast. And this is certain because you are brethren, saved. Yeah, bre he, he only is speaking to believers. When he says the word brethren, he's only speaking to believers. He's not speaking to anybody else. Now, he is speaking to everybody when he writes this, but they're not brethren. Anybody can pick up this Bible and anybody can read it. Nobody is pr prohibited, at least in America, from reading the Bible. Okay, some parts of the world, you can be executed for this, but... Anybody can pick this up and they can say, well, gee, it says brethren there, but it doesn't pertain to them unless they are a saved person, a Christian. That's right. But if it says that and it pertains to you, then he's speaking to you. Okay. So he says, brethren, because you are, then you are led by the spirit of God. See that? See how obvious it is and how it disproves the previous uh, uh, commentary by that you, you proves that you can lose your uh, salvation wasn't speaking about what that guy was referring to at all. And now he confirms it by calling them brethren. And he says, then you are led, past tense, by the Spirit of God. This means that you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. 
And what is this bondage? It's explained in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I got it right here. It says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, meaning our bodies, that's right. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him, meaning the devil, who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. That's what he's speaking about, okay? The bondage is the power of death and the fear which results from it. How many people out here are looking forward, and I'm not talking about looking forward to the rapture or dying so that we can be with Christ. I'm talking about walking across the street and seeing a car coming really quickly and not running to get out of the way of the car. We have a fear of death. Why? It's a natural instinct. And then people that don't have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, guess what? When that death comes... That's it. They have nothing else to look forward to. Now, we do, so we may stop and let the car hit us, okay, because we want to be with Jesus. But the point is that they have nothing left. When you go to a funeral of a person, and I don't care what their religion is, without Christ, they're all standing there saying, well, he's gone. There's no surety. There is no – now, for a Muslim, they have the belief that oh, he's up with 72 virgins right now. That's misdirected faith. Okay, they have a hope. It's just not in the right place. Sorry, guys. Jesus is the only way. That's all there is to it. But, you know, you could say that they have a hope. All right. But most people, when they go to the grave, they know that's the end. They are absolutely certain of it. There's, I wonder what, you know. And then, of course, what do we do? We always say something like, he's in a better place now. He's finally at rest. He's not in pain anymore because we're trying to get beyond the fact that they're just gone. All right. Mm -hmm. But Christians don't have to feel that way. There's no need for it. Yeah, universalists feel pretty good about it because nobody goes to hell. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, they're going to find out how wrong that one is. Okay, so the uh, bondage of is the power of death and the fear which results from it. And we've already seen in Romans that the law produces death in our mortal bodies. The law is, by the law, is knowledge of sin. Sin is what leads to death, right? And so Jesus shared in our humanity, he fulfilled the law, he died in fulfillment of the law, and he carried away the death associated with the law. When the death was carried away, so was the fear which was connected to it. Right. The man who does these things will live by them. And nobody could do those things, and so there's this fear that the law is always a nagging condemnation, which it is, right? Christ took that away. Once again, why anybody, why anybody would want to go back and say, I'm going to put myself under this law is beyond me. All you need to do is read the book of Galatians one time. And, you know, Chris, a mission work, Chris, she's so right. She said, you know what? If somebody reads the book of Galatians and they don't get it, they're probably never going to get it. It's so clear. It's so crystal clear what is being said in Galatians. The law is done. It's over. If you put yourself back under the law, you're a debtor to the whole law. It's a self-condemning act on and on. It, it's so, it is so obvious what he is saying. And yet people will read it and say, that doesn't say that. I, I, you know, I'll get an email from somebody that's a, you know, a law observing whatever. My husband's a Jew, and so I know what I'm talking about. And they say we have to, uh, we have to observe the Sabbath, and we have to do this, and we can't eat pork. And I, what book are you reading? I mean, what book are you reading? Chris is absolutely right. If somebody doesn't get it, they're probably never going to get it. It's such a simple and clear book that it's like reading a, you know, a, a kid's play story. It's like that's, the that's monster good. slayed the, the guy. The guy is dead. Oh, I get that. That's how simple it is. And yet 
presuppositions. Presuppositions, that's right. They're going in with presuppositions. Anyway, go on. Um, let's see here. If you truly believe the gospel and accept Christ, then you are truly free. Death has no power over you. This is as certain as the ground under your feet. The truth found in the message is absolute. As Jesus himself proclaimed, and you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. The second portion of the explanation resulting from four, I said there were two portions, is that because we are in Christ, brethren, you received the spirit of adoption. If we are adopted as sons of God, and we are, then we're his children, right? It's one plus one. This leads to an obvious conclusion that should be considered before going on. If we are adopted and are now the sons of God, then before we were adopted, we weren't sons of God. Very good. We weren't sons of God. In other words, until you are in Christ, who fulfilled the law, died in fulfillment of the law, and carried away the penalty of the law, you're not a son of God. Right? It makes complete sense to me. Stated plainly, if you are not a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you have no family relationship with God at all. Zero. People say, oh, God is my father. And you hear this all the time. You hear it all over the world. You have no relationship with God at all. None. And I, I've said this, and I know that it upsets some people's apple cart, but God does not hear the prayers of a sinner. That's explicit in the Bible. God is not going to hear. If you pray for something to God, and it happens the next day, and you're not a Christian, guess what? That's Satan telling you that you're okay. That is Satan telling you that you're okay and you're comfortable where you are because that wasn't God confirming his word to you. If you are not in Christ, you are not in Christ and you are not a child of God, okay? And the only thing that you have that he will hear is the words, I receive Jesus. And until that happens, he is not going to hear your prayers. You are not in his family, okay? That doesn't mean, as Paul said in the book of Acts uh, chapter 17, that God does good things for people. He lets the rain come down, and he's shown you the goodness that he gives to all people, all right? Because you are a part of humanity who he created and loves. He just can't fellowship with you, but he's still going to be gracious to you, okay? But that doesn't mean, being gracious does not mean that he has to be gracious to you. Some people are born deformed and die 25 minutes later, right? That's part of life. He didn't owe that person life at all. It happened, and he doesn't owe that person anything when they die. All right? People get all upset about, well, what about this, and what about... This is life. What God is doing is he is offering those who can accept Jesus the gift of choosing to. Okay? That, that is where the relationship with man stands. You are condemned already. You're on your way out. He doesn't owe you anything. If you get his grace, that's wonderful. If you get the sunshine and the rain, that's wonderful. If you're stuck up in Scotland, like my friend Charlie, who emailed me yesterday and said it was 10 degrees Celsius, which I think is 50, and it's gray and cold and windy, I thought, I'm so happy to be in Florida. You know, that's We all get different things from God, but that's just the workings of the world. Until you call on Christ, you are not a child of God. Okay? Done. Um, uh, you are as described elsewhere in the Bible. If you're not a child of God, then you are a child of, well, it begins with W and ends with wrath. Yeah, wrath, wrath. You're a child of wrath, okay? Yeah, well, but yes, you're a child of Satan. You're a child of the devil. Those are all true, but the, the result of that is a child of wrath, and that's what you are sons of wrath, okay? And now you're sons of God. 
This point shouldn't be missed because even in Christian churches, the fathership of God is tossed about as if it were universal to humanity. The Pope does that a lot. He does it a lot. The Bible does not teach this. It is either in Christ and a son of God or not in Christ and an enemy of God. Because we're born with sin, God cannot look upon sin, and thus there is wrath. You're either on the love side or the wrath side, but you can't be on both, okay? And you are not going to be on the love if you're on the wrath. So it's just what the Bible teaches. We should not talk about the universal fatherhood of God, except as human beings were created by a good father. It doesn't mean that there's still the father relationship, but you could say we were created by a good father, if you want to use that term but probably better would be to say a good creator. And that way you just skip that so they don't get mis, you know, thinking about their relationship with God. Okay, a couple more uh, thoughts and then we'll be done. With that clear, we can see the resulting benefit of the spirit of adoption, where once we were at complete odds with God, we can now call out to him as our, as it says, Abba, Father. Okay, everybody know what Abba is? It's an Aramaic term. That's right, for dad. It's, it, it's like saying dad. It's a very personal term. Okay, Abba is an, indi- oh, let me uh, go back here. Paul uses both the Aramaic and the Greek as Jesus did in Mark 14.36. Let me go right there and we'll take you there just really quickly. Mark 14.36, it says, uh, wrote it down, might as well read it to you. Let's see here. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And what was the cup? Wrath. The cup of God's wrath, right? Implying that God is happy with everybody. No. Right? No, he's angry. He's angry at sin. And that doesn't mean angry like getting angry. And, you know, once again, think of the nature of God. When we say that God is wrathful towards sin, it is because it is a part of his nature. He doesn't change. He doesn't love and then not love and he doesn't love you more than he loves me he is love but if you're not on the loving side of him without him changing at all you are on the wrathful side of him think of the nature of God now as I say uh, it's a bad example because God is not a stone pillar okay it's just an example for you to think this through you have a stone pillar and it's right here okay and you're standing on this side which is the happy side and all this good, happy stuff is happening, right? And then you walk over to this side, and this is the side where all the rain is falling, and there's lightning bolts and, and um, cats. you got dogs on this side and cats on I'm kidding, I know. You're either a dog person or a cat person. I'm using the dog good analogy. And we'll, we'll drop that. Drop the cats and dogs, because I, I don't mind cats that much. Um, but on this side is all the bad stuff happening, right? Did the pillar move? No. No, the pillar is never going to move. It's stuck and firm. This is what we can think of as in the nature of God. We have moved in relation to God. When we are born, we're on this side. This is our default position. When we are conceived in our mother's womb, that sin transferred from Adam to us, and it is the default position to be on this side. That is what the Bible teaches. This must be changed by an act of the free will, the volitional free will of man saying, I am moving to this side of God. I am receiving Jesus Christ where he's got all the happy stuff for us. He didn't change. He will never change. He is unchanging. He doesn't think like we do. The Bible says that he does so that we can understand what is going on, but it's not how God actually works, okay? It's important to understand the nature of God, but he said, Abba, Father, in Mark 14, 36, Paul writes it here. Abba is an endearing and personal term closely associated with the word daddy. 
It is the call of the child to the one who protects and feeds him. Father is the Greek pater, which is the one who begets life. In this, then, there is a respect and an adoration. Citing both languages then demonstrates our closeness to God and our gratitude and dependence on him. Okay, before I read the last paragraph of that, I don't think I've said this during the Romans study, but I said it quite a few times during the Acts study. What was the original language that the New Testament was written in? It's something that people are very, very confused about. You say Greek, you say Greek. Okay, somebody said Aramaic, and then you'll hear people say Hebrew. There's only one possible answer to that, and the answer is Greek. It was written in Greek. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It wasn't written in Aramaic. And people want to say, well, the Aramaic was the original language of the New Testament, and then it was changed into Greek. And they did the same thing, and they say Hebrew was, it wasn't. And that's because in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, it says a word like Gabbatha, and it says which translated is in the Greek means, or which translated means. It doesn't say in the Greek, but it says which translated means. And it does that in all four Gospels, and it does it in the English. So now you have a dilemma, because he is saying that I'm telling you what it says in the original language, and I'm translating it into this language, which is Greek, by the way, okay? Either that is not an original part of the Bible, and we don't have the original Bible, right? Because somebody just added that in years and years and years later, or he really did write it in Greek. And he's telling us what that word means because I'm not a Hebrew or Aramaic speaking person, okay? And that is true with all four Gospels and the book of Acts. They were not written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And people will defend that. They'll make up all of these goofy things. They will actually say that the Septuagint, which is the Old uh, Testament translation of the uh, Greek Old uh, Testament translation of the Bible was actually made up by the Catholic Church. They make up all kinds of crazy stuff in order to defend what is indefensible. Okay? But I the, thought that they wrote it in English. Yeah, no, they did. Actually, you're right. It was written in 1611 King James Version, and then they went and they translated it back from the uh, or to the original language that they spoke. I, there are people that say that, too, so that's why it's so funny. Is that uh, you? Ha he had that today. He had somebody say that the Hebrew is wrong on a post because King James Version is correct. If I go back to the Greek, I've left the Word of God. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, crazy. Paul, what it, was he thinking? It, it like is absolutely Lord. crazy what people get into. It, it, there is what we would call orthodoxy, and then you have what we would call insane. Okay. <laughs> Stick with orthodoxy; it works better. Okay. Last paragraph: The spirit of adoption is key to understanding our new position. Jesus is the Son of God. When we receive him, we are now linked to God directly because of him. God will no more reject us than he would reject his own beloved Jesus. Will God ever reject his son? No. no. If we are in Christ, we are in Christ. He will never reject us as much as he will never reject his own son. Impossible. God doesn't work that way, okay? The surety of being in Christ is complete. It is eternal it is the hope of glory which will never fade. You know what? I was, while I was cleaning the bathrooms earlier, I was listening to the book of Ruth. You know, on YouTube, they have the book of Ruth, like 800, and this one was 20 minutes long. It was all in Hebrew, except they had a narrator in between the Hebrew actors, and it was all done in Israel. It was beautiful. Um, he was would read from the Bible, and then they go back into the acting, and I was 
I was bawling back there listening oh, to that, to think what Christ did. When they got to the part about redeeming us, and then this is the, the you know, he was the son of uh, his Jesse and then Obed, and uh, Obed, Jesse, and then David, and he is the king of Israel. I was bawling. I'm telling you what, what God has done for us is so magnificent. And, you know, when we read this and we have a study, it, it gets real you know, complicated, and it gets real uh, you know, like I, I've got to defend my position and I want to say what's wrong. And But when it comes down to it, it is the message of the cross. It is what God has done for us. And that's why we're here is to understand the complexities of us. And sometimes when you understand the complexities, you kind of lose the emotion. So you don't want to lose the emotion. And that's why you go back and you read these older stories and you watch them and you see a different perspective. And it just, it brings right back home how wonderful what God did is. But it's not enough to hear the story and then to just say, I'm set in my doctrine. I can make it without God from there. You need to be in the Bible. Whether you come to Bible class or whether you go to another class or whether you, 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 the more you're in church and the more you're in Bible study and the more you're reading the word and the more you're watching movies like that beautiful one done in Israel, done in Hebrew, the more you're going to be closer to Christ. That's what's important, okay? Life application, we are done. If you are in Christ, death is defeated. Yes, these bodies will wear out and they will die, but that is not the end of the story. As surely as Jesus came out of the grave because it was impossible for death to hold him, so is the surety of the same for you. It is as sure as this word, and I can tell you that if you have any doubts about this word, you're not in enough because I've read it enough where I can say I have zero doubts. There are things I do not understand. There are things I'm certain I'm wrong about, although I don't know it because I wouldn't teach it purposely wrong. But I am absolutely positively certain that this is the Word of God. It is a self-validating document. It is 100%. So let's close in prayer here, and we will be done. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this precious Word. We thank you for the wonderful stories it contains, like Ruth, just a, a, a obscure little book that so many people have never even glanced at, and yet it shows us the marvel of redemption and just such a beautiful story of love and of just caring for other people, how you care for us as your creatures. Ah, it is so wonderful. And then you go into the, the analytical side of things and you send somebody like Paul who can break down for us the intricacy of what you did step by step by step so that we can see that it is as sure and it is as certain as the ground under our feet. What a great God you are to do this, to give us such comfort, such hope when we have people like Paul who is at home and just struggling with the next day and and just feeling dejected and worn out that he has a hope in you which is way above this mortal physical life and our brother graham who's suffering through physical troubles he knows there's a better day coming these things are so wonderful to us we know that they're true and we hold fast to those and give us that reassurance when we're failing in our faith and uh, give us one of those god winks to let us know that you're still there with us and we appreciate every one of them we thank you for them. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Martin Luther said you should read Romans all the time, learn it verse by verse, be able to quote it. That is absolutely right. Somebody, somebody meets Lord, they say, what should I read first? I always say, read Romans 5 or 8 or 10 times and then read the book of Hebrews. And then, and then from there you can start reading other things. But that's where you're going to get your theology from. So let's say goodbye to the folks online. We love you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you later. What's that?
You mean, you mean by, by the, the camera? camera? That's, that's, that's a good idea. idea. Yeah, 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 that's, that's a very, very good, good idea. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Wonderful stuff. Have a great night, Joanne. Thank you. Show me.